Welcome to Cannonball, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Cannonball, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. It's Chuck Ryback. Chuck, how's it going? It's going very, very well. A little overcast today here in Green Bay, but it's going really well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay after a day where it just felt like it rained all day yesterday. Like it was yeah. just wet and gross all day. And I why I, do you I, not like the why do you hate the rain? I, I was mean, I was a little bummed. It was a Sunday. I was hoping for uh nicer weather. The nice thing is I drove out of town for a kids' soccer game and it was actually just fine, about 45 minutes hmm. south of here. So that was nice. Yeah, I just think you need to show more respect for the rain. The rain is not for <laughs> okay. The rain Sounds is good. amazing. It's actually yeah. one of my favorite. I love rainy days. I like being outside in the rain. I mean, I'm not talking about storms or anything. I just, I like the rain a lot. I, you're right. I don't, I don't dislike the rain as much as I wanted different weather on Sunday. <laughs> I, I will accept that explanation. <laughs> this is welcome to weather talk with yeah. Chuck and Ryan. Chuck, we should get right to our awesome guest. We should, today. we should. Because, uh, I'm super, super excited to talk with her. She is an associate professor here at UW-Green Bay with a PhD in political science from Western Michigan. She teaches courses in environmental policy and planning, political science, and our environmental science and policy and our sustainable management graduate programs. She's also one of two campus pre-law advisors. Her courses are environmental law, environmental policy, geopolitics, and more. It's Dr. Elizabeth Wheat. How's it going, Liz? Good, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. You bet. So real quick, how, what did you think of the rain? We need a, a, a vote caster just to, to decide the tie for us. You know, it's a tough call yesterday because I was driving back from Michigan. So I really got rain the entire time as the storm front moved east. So gotcha. I, I love being out in it. It reminds me of actually my time in Scotland. Uh, so I kind of like the misty, foggy mornings. Um, but mostly I was hoping it would complicate the game a little bit and make it easier for the Packers. So I was <laughs> more right. utilitarian with the weather yesterday. <laughs> Excellent. I, I'm going to take that as a win for me because what you're saying is it's contextual and yes. there are some contexts in which rain is good, which was my argument so Ryan, all along. One of my Ryan favorite Purdy. songs right now is by a guy named Joe Purdy, who is a really good folk artist. And the song is called, I love the rain the most when it stops. So I think you have another person in your corner. <laughs> Very, good. Very good. All right. So Liz, I want to, you know, as, as listeners know, you know, we, we now frame these episodes. We have two episodes coming up here where we're talking with you. This one about your sort of journey, what you're up to now, that sort of thing. So I want to start there. How did you... How did you get to where you are today? What, what made you interested in political science? What made you interested in environmental law? How did we get here? You know, the timing of this is actually, it's a lot of fun because I went back for my college homecoming this weekend and I have not missed a homecoming. I went to Alma College for my undergrad and I have not missed a homecoming since I was born because my mom also went to Alma. And so I really sort of got to where I am now uh, because of two of the faculty that were there. One unfortunately passed this summer, but another one I got to visit with this weekend. And uh, I had gone to Elma starting as a psych major, did my psych major in a year and a half because that's all I took, and then kind of stumbled into political science, particularly with uh, Model United Nations, and just loved it. And I think uh, our Model UN advisor, who I still work with, is really a huge inspiration personally, but also he was the kind of professor I wanted to be. 
And so that really ignited my love for international relations. And I had a couple of other faculty members who really got, I think, the environmental stuff going. And um, the faculty member who passed away is Michael Yavinditti. And that's really where the pre-law part came in. And I think in any true liberal arts kid fashion, you take a little bit of everything. And so I just started to see the connections between politics and environmental law and Model UN was a really great space to put all of that together. And I think really challenged myself. Alma has a very good program. And so it, uh, for the competitive type, it was a really good way to again, challenge myself, work really hard and bring all of the areas that I care about together. Hey, can, do me a favor and, so for people like me who are naive to model UN, just describe it to me and our listeners. What's it like? What do you do? You, um, your, your school is assigned a country and you're on different committees in, in real life. So for example, World Health Organization or um, I'm trying to think some of the General Assembly committees. So, you're, so my first year, for example, I was Ethiopia and I was on the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, actually, oh, sorry, that was the OAU year, which makes me feel old because the OAU doesn't even exist anymore in the UN system. That's great. Um, they're now the African Union. But um, you're given topics. And so you pretend to be the delegate of that country on that committee. And so I, my first year was in 2000, and I was in Ethiopia on um, the OAU. I, had, I didn't know anything about refugees. We had to do map quizzes. I'm from a really small town in Michigan. And so the world just got so much bigger learning about these topics. And then you go to these conferences and Alma competes at two. Uh, the really big one is in New York. And you're talking, I don't even know. I mean, it's several thousand people at this conference and you get to meet people from all over the world. And so I think you learn about these places by representing them, but then by having the conversations throughout the week and you write UN resolutions and then uh, you vote on them towards the end of the, the conference. And there's different levels of awards and that sort of thing. And Elma's program is exceptional. I actually just got our 100th award this year. Um, and so we've won 24 consecutive years at the New York conference. And so it's one of those things that um, the preparation really is what gets you there, that you are so well-versed. You really, If someone yelled Ethiopia, I probably would turn to answer it because you just internalize it so much. But I think that's, you know, it, there is certainly the competitive element, but you're really immersing yourself in a different country, in their policy and pretending to be a diplomat. And this is something you've been pretty involved with at GB as well. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, we don't have a team here, but I wanted to bring what I felt were some of the best elements of Model UN and simulations into my classroom. And so with every class that I do, we have some sort of simulation. And I used to teach global politics, and I don't do that one anymore, but for global environmental politics, every student is assigned a country. And I actually use the same research that we use for the New York conference for Model UN, so they get a background guide. And they have to do the same thing. We spend three days in class, they prepare research finders, they prepare speeches, and they really pretend to be those delegates for a few days. And it's been really powerful because so many of the students are, are like I was. They didn't know about these countries, they'd never heard of them before, didn't know where they were on a map. And now they're representing Togo, you know, or more Mauritius, and really learning about some of the environmental problems that exist all over the world. And so I think it's been really cool. I, I definitely get a lot of pushback on the amount of work with it, but at the end, 
I talk with the students, and this will actually be my sabbatical research too, I talk with the students about the skills that they get, because that is what I think is one of the best parts with Model UN in the long run, is challenging yourself to do something that's difficult, but also the skills of doing difficult research and writing a, a persuasive position statement and giving, you know, working in a group. And I think a lot of those research skills and just that, that challenge has served me well in so many areas beyond Model UN. And that's what I try to convey to the students too, is that sure, this is an assignment that's graded, but you're going to be so well-prepared for so many areas you can't even think of right now. And just the confidence that I think you get from doing this. And with, for the surveys that I've done, that, that confidence and just the, I didn't think I could do this. I kind of thought you were crazy for making me do it. Um, they can start to see the impacts of that. And um, I think that, you know, in the long run is really gonna serve them well. Liz, if I can ask, so in, Thinking about the students and like you say, they represent countries and all that. How about, do you, do you notice anything in the students' attitude toward just the concept of a, of a UN itself? Because I, I find in the States, particularly, that we have a really complicated, like wide range of views about the UN, I, I would say. Like, do the students reflect um, the body itself and like what its potential is? Definitely. And I think that's probably one of the biggest surprise areas for them. They, they might think of the UN as sort of one big thing, right? And we do different parts of the UN. So we might do the UN um, development committee or um, I again do the UN high commissioner for refugees or the human rights council or the environmental association, right? Assembly, sorry. And they didn't know about the different parts of the UN. And then they, they're surprised that these different parts of the UN do some pretty cool things all over the world. And I think it really does start to change their idea of what international law is and what happens outside the US because they might just hear Congress complaining about the foreign aid that we're giving or recently, you know, the conflict in, in Afghanistan. And they don't hear about, you know, hey, USAID is, to, is bringing vaccines into these countries. They're doing health clinics. They're helping refugees resettle. And so I think they don't, they definitely, they're coming with preconceptions and you see those shift over the course of the semester. And it'd be cool to follow up. I generally have juniors and seniors in my classes, but it would be really cool to follow up a few years later to see you know, what long lasting effects on this um, there were. Cause I know going to the conference, um, I had never met people from so many different countries and one year in New York, we had a delegation from Iraq. They had middle of the conflict and they flew to the conference. And it was so powerful to watch them stand up because we're actually at the UN for the last day of the conference. And it was so powerful to watch them stand up and be recognized for their commitment to model UN, but also what they had overcome to get there. And I know for the, for the other ALMA students on the team that year, that just really struck us all. And I try to bring as much of that exposure into my classes here. And I have had some students from, I've had some Fulbright scholars and occasionally grad students that will be, take the, my classes as well. And I think it's been really powerful for more of the, you know, traditional Midwest students to kind of hear, hey, this is really what the UN does in other places. And these are the environmental problems in other places. And we have a shared problem. We also have shared responsibility. That's really interesting. I mean, I think we take 
for granted when people talk about things being global so much these days, the global this, the global that, that I don't think, at least, I, I don't want to just put it on our students. I just think people in general don't really know the level, like what that really means in yeah. the way that you just described. One thing's like, you know, we've, we've, with the pandemic over the last year, a lot of it, you know, we've all, we've all lost something. We've all been in difficult situations. And, you know, for a lot of people, kids haven't been in school, but the consequences of that are so different from developed versus developing countries. And, you know, I think the technology access that our students have, we'll be, we've talked about that in some of the classes this semester that, you know, it's a lot more accessible here than if you're in Sierra Leone. And so what are college students in Sierra Leone doing right now as they're trying to compete? And we're getting ready for the New York conference next spring. And my sabbatical will actually be working with Alma's model UN team. And they're putting in a vaccination requirement. And there were a lot of questions for the conference because of the travel ban in the U.S. that other students from international, you know, other countries couldn't necessarily come here. We competed online in uh, this year. But that was sort of one of the questions, because I think the strength of this is that sort of common humanity and shared experiences. And you are all coming to this hotel in New York to learn about these things that you're passionate about. And I think that international character is really important. And at least as of now, it looks like we're going to be able to get back to that experience. And I think with this last year, trying to bring in some of those elements to the classes, you know, I can't take my class to, to New York to compete. But one of the speakers we're going to have in our All Rise series on campus this semester will be a friend from Alma who is also from Model UN, and he's a USAID officer and just got back from Pakistan. He was processing refugees uh, in, in Doha, and so he's now back in Pakistan, lives in Thailand, and that's the kind of experience I can bring in because of those Model UN relationships and I think humanize a bit of a conflict. And so I've tried to do more of that in the last year of, of thinking about what are the best elements with this international component to Model UN and how can I get that to our students here? So let's, I wanna talk a little bit, one of the things that's really um, interesting to me, Liz, about your work is that I, you know, in this, so here we're talking about the UN, this big, broad global thing, um, but also last year, you you did a talk for us um, as part of the Common Cause series titled The Civil Rights Movement Meets the Environmental Movement. And what struck me about that is how, how local that talk was, right? I mean, this talk was very much about specific places and specific cases related to in, environmental law. And so there is this, you know, I noticed about your work, this the, the I guess one of those to use the the cliched phrase all politics is local that we're talking about these big global environmental problems but also really acknowledging that these have dramatic effects on people in the community can you say more about that talk and about your your focus in that area yeah and I think with with the environmental justice issues and and certainly with the international environmental problems as well it's easy to feel that they are elsewhere and that they're almost too big to have any sort of impact on. And so with every talk and kind of conversation, like, you know, like the one in the fall, um, I want to find a way for people to personally connect to it. And, and so I think that maybe that's, that connection is time. So I talked about the, the whole family in Dixon, Tennessee, and that was within the last 10, 20 years. It's not something that happened in the 60s that the students weren't alive for. And we have these environmental issues and we have these um, 
these challenges in our own community. Because I know, I think sometimes problems can feel too big to take any meaningful steps on. And so I want to make it more of an empowering kind of a mindset that here is what you can do, even if doing is just starting by learning about the problem, but here's what you can do beyond that. And so with the environmental justice, that was, I think, a really powerful area for me because it brought together all of my law interests with my environmental policy, and then looking at how communities are affected differently. My undergrad was near, it's a super fun, near super fun site, and, but it's a predominantly white community. And so the way they dealt with um, kind of the harms in that, in that area was very different than say some of the communities in Baton Rouge or along Cancer Alley in Louisiana are gonna deal with that. But when I was teaching at Alma, I could talk about, hey, here's how we're dealing with the Superfund and groundwater contamination. Look at the resources we have and then let's compare it to another area. And with Green Bay, we've got the Fox River. And so I think there's a lot of connections that, um, that resonate more with students if they feel that it is part of their lives and it is not just something that happens far away that they, they don't have to think about. Um, and so that's, that's, again, kind of the connections I try to make, but really empower them so that the problems don't seem too big so that they hopefully want to solve them. So Liz, if I could connect the two things. So I, I'm a science fiction reader and I just recently finished this book called The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, who is being referred to as an kind of an environmental writer now. And, and the book is about climate change. And it's kind of, it's a thousand page novel, but it's really about the steps that people that we would need to take to go through to try to really make, you know, to stop some of the effects of climate change. It, long story short, the UN plays a huge role in that, in that book, because it, to your point, like, could, I'm not sure what I'm asking here, but like, do you see a future where the UN is, I don't know, more important than it is now? I'm not saying it's not important, but I know there's a lot of resistance to the UN politically, like in places like the US, where there's insistence that sovereignty is at stake and all this kind of stuff. But do, do you imagine a future where, you know, so in this novel, it's like the UN is in a and the World Bank and places like that are crucial to uniting to help, you know, solve this problem, these environmental problems worldwide. So I, I don't follow the UN closely. So does the UN have a role to play in something like that in the future? I think, I, think, I really think it does. And I, I try to break it down so that it's not just one monolithic UN system, that there are different parts with different strengths. And I think that has been a powerful way. Um, you know, I, I'll talk to students about the UNEP internships in Kenya because like, you can apply for that. Uh, I think the Fulbright is another way to sort of get those connections because the UN is based is a lot of passionate people working on international diplomacy. And the Fulbright can be a nice gateway to that career. And so thinking, okay, learn about another country, go there, research, study, and then think about what you want to do. How do you want to affect policy? The UN is a great way to do that. It's not the only way. Foreign service is another option. But I think you convince people that it can do things by helping them become part of it and learning about what it does. And so I'll take very specific programs like, hey, I, a former student who after he graduated went into the army and actually ended up working with the UNDP helping elections because I said, hey, you know, we walk over to the student union to vote. 
If you're in some developing countries, voting is really dangerous. The UN can help staff that. They can help secure the ballots. They can help set up polls. And really simple things like that makes the UN seem less like a big bad monster and more of a practical institution. But I also think you see a generational change that with students, this makes me sound so old, um, with younger students these days, um, you, you get a different mindset that I don't think they see themselves as isolated you know, as the US as an island. And we're part of a global community and with some of the climate change issues, I talk about the IPCC reports and, and the research. And there's a really cool group, Climate Wisconsin was their name, that talked about different ways climate change is affecting things we care about in Wisconsin. It really localized this big, broad international issue to events that we have here. And I think that's how you get to convincing people the UN can do more of just helping them learn more about it and becoming part of that. Yeah, just a quick side note to that is I, I had sometime in the past year, I had read um, the most recent biography of Malcolm X and just thinking about how important the UN was to Malcolm X, like he really wanted US race relations to become a human rights issue taken on by the UN. And that was his goal. Like he looked at the UN and he saw hope and yep. the possibility for change. Yeah, and, that's, I, and the students kind of tease me sometimes because I will talk about Model UN all day long. I love it. I've been doing it now for 21 years. And so I'm, I'm a big cheerleader of the whole UN system, but I'm also not going to tell you it's perfect. And I think, you know, I, I try to be honest about the limitations there um, as well, but I definitely am much more the, the optimist of all the cool stuff that it can do because for the agencies that I've focused on with environmental and I think some of the human rights, they've done a lot of great things. You know, I think if you get into some other ones, it's tougher when you're in military issues. And I think some of the civil wars uh, and there certainly have been differences between the UN and the US when it comes to COVID and things like the vaccines. But I'm also saying, you know, US is part of some pretty big initiatives through the World Health Organization that we're making a difference on because we have the, the resources to do that. So is it perfect? No, but maybe you should become part of it and make it better. You know, it's interesting that where things have shifted, because I don't think, you know, Chuck just used the word hope talking about um, UN and, you know, I hear you talking about being optimistic about things. I, I will admit that there is no issue that makes me feel as hopeless as climate change and the environment and that I, it just feels like this. And I, I agree, by reasons. the way. Yeah. Okay, good. I join um, you in your hopelessness. Good. And, I, and I, the thing is, and I'm, I'm, I promise that there's a positive end to this, or at least a question at the end of this, but um, it feels like there's two issues. One is it feels like this massive, massive, massive set of problems, like not even a single problem, but just this huge, complicated set of problems, along with the fact that I don't, I don't feel like most people recognize the scope of the problem, how complicated the solutions are, or, or even, frankly, the absence of solutions. And so I wonder, and this is where I'm getting to a, a question, I wonder how, what it's like to work with students around this issue so often who, um, who you want to feel empowered, I think, to change the world, but at the same time address sort of the scope of the problem and help them understand how, how monumental a task this is. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it's hard because it, 
you know, I can't say, hey, you know, recycling is important. I mean, it is, but is it is you recycling or all 30 students in a class recycling going to cure climate change? No. Um, and so I really it just comes back to trying to break it down into manageable pieces. And so one example is a friend of mine named Bonnie Hamilton. She is getting her doctorate in Toronto and doing Arctic research on microplastics. Model UN friend competed for a number of years, and she became passionate about looking at environmental issues and microplastics from her time in the UN. And that's actually the story of probably most of my friends from college. And so Bonnie has gone out. She actually just got back from some cold place in the Arctic where she had to wear lots of gear. Um, and so I try to bring in students like Bonnie who are really working on this and say, hey, these are really big issues, but you know what? She just did core sampling for three weeks. That's gonna to contribute to science. She's one of the IPCC reviewers now as well. And so I try to give the message that it, it takes all of us doing what we can in different ways. You know, am I gonna be on a glacier? No, I don't like it cold below 70. That's not gonna, that's not my calling. And so I think I, I try to come from that mindset where you can do something. These are really big problems, but, you know, program your representative and your congressman in your phone and call them. We have a huge bill before Congress right now, and the Democrats are really divided on what to do about climate change because a large coalition wants to do more. But you know what? They elected an administration that is now more pro-climate change and wants to do those things. That's, that matters. That's a good step. And so I think getting people to find what the tangible steps are and not be negative because they're, they're huge problems. They're, they're difficult, but that doesn't accomplish anything thinking that they're, they're difficult. You just sort of get more depressed. Um, I try to have, again, more of that positive of here's what you can do and just believe that our actions add up. Yep. And that, that's a good time, Liz, to plug the book of our keynote speaker from last year's Common Cause, which was coming of age at the end of the world. And how to deal with climate anxiety and dealing with students and youth. So, yeah. Sarah so, Jacquet-Ray, right? Yeah, all I'm going to say is so, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Sarah Jacquet-Ray. And it's a great also, book. assigned reading, The Ministry of the Future. We got we to gotta do that. Excellent. I'll check that out. Sounds good. So let's, uh, let's, let's wrap up this part one of our two-part series with Liz here. A um, couple things I would say, listeners. One, uh, if you want to learn more about Liz, be sure to come back in two weeks for uh, episode two here, where she's going to talk about the works that inspired her. Also, you can uh, check her out. Um, you can check out her faculty page at uwgb.edu. Um, Liz, the, the All Rise series is a series you've put together. You can learn more about that on causeeffect.org. Uh, that's C-A-H-S-S effect with an E dot org. Um, that's a, a really great series you're doing as uh, one of the, the pre-law advisors. Um, and so bringing in all sorts of speakers, they are virtual, so they're easy to attend. Plus, you get to bring in speakers from all over the the country, right? Or maybe even all over the, all the world. Country. Yep. All over the world. Outstanding. So um, really good stuff there. Um, let's see. Uh, you can follow me at Anger Professor in all of the different places. And then you can, of course, follow the College of Arts, Management, and Social Sciences at UWGBCAHSS, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Shout out to our intern, Kelsey, who's been doing great work there. And Ryan, if anybody wants to follow me, you can find me sometimes on a bench in Voyager Park in De Pere, <laughs> looking at the Fox River, which is a lot cleaner now than it used to be. So thanks yes. for bringing that up, Liz. 
Outstanding. I, I was. I thought you were going to say they can find you at Legend Larry's uh, eating chicken wings, but um, but that's also- after after sunset. Uh, gotcha. Okay. Very good. Cannonball is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vleese, and our music was created by our very own Chuck Ryback. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Liz Wheat. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwdb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of, episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Ryback. Thanks for listening.